It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 147, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Frank Morton of Wild Garden Seeds in Philomath, Oregon, I think I said that right, supplies seed companies, farmers, and gardeners with seeds that are selected and grown in a real organic environment. With his wife and business partner, Karen, and five employees, Frank grows certified organic seeds on about eight acres. Wild Garden Seeds is unusual in the seed business because they grow everything that they sell right there in Oregon's Willamette Valley. Frank shares his story of getting started on his market garden in 1980 and how he developed a gourmet salad greens business that ships salads to top restaurants nationwide. This high-end salad greens business allowed and encouraged him to start selecting the best plants for organic salad production, as well as to begin to develop new custom varieties for his farm. We also dig into his on-the-job education in seed breeding, how he and Karen made the transition from salad growers to seed company and how Wild Garden Seeds has worked with partner farms to grow their seed business. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop growing professionals, committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And by Local Food Marketplace, helping farms and food hubs around North America implement easy-to-use online ordering systems that integrate with a full management system for order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Contact localfoodmarketplace.com to learn more. Frank Morton, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Wild Garden Seeds, where you guys are located, and and just exactly what you're doing there. Okay. Well, Wild Garden Seeds is is uh, here in Oregon. Uh, we're in Oregon's Willamette Valley, which is known as a, a world-class place to grow seeds, actually. We're blessed with the perfect kind of climate for growing biennial crops, and we have a dry harvest uh, season in August and September, and we have a mild winter for overwintering things. Uh, we have good soils here, and companies actually come from all over the world to have their seeds produced in this location. I had no idea about that when I started saving seeds. I learned about that uh, easily six or eight years into my career. I figured out that I just happened to be in a great place to do it. We sell organic seeds to uh, other seed companies like Johnny's, for example, High Mowing, Territorial, Fedco, all those people that organic growers around the country buy their seeds from. Those are our biggest customers. We sell directly to farmers like ourselves. We think of ourselves really as growing seeds for organic growers. That's what we want to do. We also sell to gardeners. This year, we've we've, uh, increased the number of flowers we sell. So we're selling more flowers to cut flower people. And in general, what we do here is we try to supply the organic market with high quality seeds that are grown in a real organic environment. That is to say, everything we do is organic. I don't know another way to do it. (laughs) So, but the bigger part of that is we breed new varieties and we make intentional selections from existing varieties to find the ones that are actually doing the best in the organic environment. 
the organically managed environment. Organically managed farms are different than conventionally managed farms. So even if a farmer is using conventionally grown seed and getting good results, we think that they can get better results if they're actually using seed that was grown out under organic conditions and selected or reselected under those conditions. Organic farmers don't use crop protection chemicals. We don't use concentrated, highly soluble fertilizers. So our plants actually are different. And wild garden seed, uh, from the beginning, our intention has been to supply seeds that give better results for people that you know, use organic methods. And of course, what you're doing when you talk about producing organic seeds and selecting in an organic environment, I mean, this is different than growing Bolero carrots, a hybrid carrot, in an organic setting and, and slapping a certification label on it, you're really going far beyond that model of seed production. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, first of all, everything we do is OP, so we don't do any hybrids. But more to the point, what you've picked up on is we are actually breeding for the organic environment, whereas a Bolero carrot or things that are produced in conventional seed settings are not being bred for organic conditions. They're being bred for conventional conditions, which are somewhat different. But what we're doing here is all happening on this year, about eight acres. We have, um, in 2014, we grew as many as 15 acres of organic seed. That was uh, a little too much probably. And so we've cut back on that. I have five employees this year, and what they're involved in is a year-round, actually it's a 14-month job as I look at it, because we start that seed uh, as early as January in some cases in the greenhouse for transplanting out later. So this crew that I have is specifically trained to the seed cycle of things as opposed to the produce cycle. There's a lot of difference in growing seed versus growing vegetables of the same varieties. In the first place, the season is just way longer. When you grow um, a lettuce for a fresh market, you know, it's, uh, it's under your care for a couple of months maybe. And then you get, to, you get a redo on it if it didn't work out so well. When you grow lettuce for seeds, it's a long-term process. And uh, getting that beautiful head of lettuce is only the first part of it. Then you have to take it all the way through the seed part of life, which exposes the plant to uh, more challenges. Everything from uh, late, late stage diseases and insects to uh, predation by birds, being subject to the weather during harvest time. And so at the end of the year, you, you do your harvest and then... You know, most of our seeds are harvested by October. Then we're cleaning seeds through December. And then we're shipping those off to our seed companies. Then we start selling to farmers and gardeners in January. Sandwiched in there somewhere, I'm supposed to write a seed catalog <laughs> that, <laughs> that includes all of our new successful things that we did that year. Uh, so... Really, we're still in the process of selling one year's product when we begin the next year. So it is a full-time job. And the people who work with me are 
uh, very specially trained. They look at plants differently than uh, you would on a different farm. So how did you get your start in the seed business? Well, it was just kind of a natural progression, to be honest. I had a BS in psychology when I left college, and I never intended to be a psychologist. I always wanted to do something creative, and at that age, self-reliance was something that was really high on my priority list. And so actually becoming a farmer uh, was a natural selection for me, I think, because I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be self-reliant. I wanted to be creative. And I wanted my time to be my own. And when you start thinking about it, there's not too many jobs <laughs> that offer you those things other than farming. And so um, the very first time that I started my market garden in 1980, uh, and I put in my first uh, order of seeds to Johnny's Selected Seeds, uh, one of the things I bought was a little booklet that Rob Johnston has always offered about how to grow your own seeds. It's a tiny booklet. I think he wrote it, oh, I don't know in the 70s sometime. And I thought that, of course, a farmer would grow their own seeds. That only made sense to me at that time. And so, you know, I just naturally started saving my own seeds the first year that I grew lettuce and peas and beans and stuff like that. I saved the seeds for everything. Well, a couple of years later, and on a different farm already, I was growing out some of those lettuce seeds that I had first produce for myself. And I had grown thousands of these green salad bowl lettuces out of the seed packet that I had saved for myself. And then one day I noticed that there was a dark red lettuce in among all the green ones. And I thought to myself and realized that it must have been a cross to the red romaine lettuce that I had been growing seeds for simultaneously with the green lettuce. So I recognized it as a cross. And I thought that would be really cool if I could have my own variety of red salad bowl lettuce. I didn't know that there was a red version that existed. So I thought it would be something original at the time. Well, I saved the seed from that one plant. And because it was late during the season when I had found it, the plant only made 65 lettuce seeds, which is only about three or four seed capsules off the plant. And I saved those seeds. And I was expecting that when I planted them out, I would see a whole lot of red salad bowl lettuce, but that's not what I saw. I saw 65 different plants that came out of those 65 seeds. They were all different. And some of them did look like a red salad bowl, but there were also things that looked like romaine lettuces that were upright. And there were lettuces that had special little crenulations along the leaf margins of a romaine-type lettuce, and there were others that were splattered with red, and others that were blushed, and there were different shades of green, and there were different shades of red. And I saw all that diversity, and the light just came on. It's like, oh, this is, how, this is where new varieties come from. It really was the lettuce teaching me about plant breeding. I had taken, you know, <laughs> advanced biology in high school, so I knew about Gregor Mendel and his peas, and I knew about that stuff, but it was all book learning. 
And I had even taken botany classes in college, but not genetics. And so to see this happen in, uh, in real time, right before my eyes, was it was an epiphany, to tell you the truth. And I knew that, well, I knew that people always want something new, even in vegetables at that time. And so I saw that this could be an adjunct to a farm business if you could grow your own varieties. And this was about the time that I was introduced to the true pioneer of the mixed uh, salad green industry. His name is Mark Music. He's from Pacific Northwest. And Mark Music had a business at this same time selling very unusual salad mixes to restaurants in Seattle. And they were called, he called them his wild salad. And they were mixtures of cultivated crops along with chickweed and dandelion greens and lamb's quarter and, you know, all these wild greens that happen seasonally. Mark Music was including in this, uh, well, this package that he would deliver to restaurants. And the restaurants would take these different unusual salad greens from each bag and would mix them together. And uh, along with there would be edible flowers on top, wild mustard blossoms, uh, scarlet runner blossoms, kale flowers, radish flowers, that kind of thing. It was a big sensation in Seattle around 1980 through 1982. I met Mark in 1983, and he told me about this salad idea for restaurants. And he, most importantly, told me how to get the salad from the farm, which was 60 miles outside Seattle, to the restaurant. And the answer was a UPS truck. Mark had come up with a packaging system that allowed him to bag these delicate uh, hand-picked greens, put them into individual bags inside boxes, and a UPS truck in the, in the walk-in cooler. And the UPS driver would come to the farm, would walk into the cooler, pick up the box, and deliver it to a restaurant in Seattle for a dollar and fifty cents. And it would get there overnight, and it would be perfectly good when it arrived. That was the most important of all the information that Mark gave to me. And I went back to my farm and started essentially remaking this idea in sort of my own way of thinking about it. And I spent a lot of time researching everything, every plant that you could eat raw, (laughs) going through all the ethnobotany books, every seed source I could find, looking for any reference to eating different species, different crops uh, in a salad form. And within about a year, I had come up with, um, I don't know, a salad that contained more than 20 items uh, that changed essentially every few weeks. The mix was changing constantly. But for the first time, it included things uh, that that Mark would never have put in his salad, like garden cress and wild cress. He thought those were, were too hot, you know, and we started using endive and radicchio and radish pods and <laughs> all kinds of things. Uh, the, the flowering shoots that we now call kale rob these days, the kale shoots, the the mustard shoots from all the hot mustards and the sweet mustards and pea tips 
and things that are, you know, these things are being used now, but they were not being used at that time. But what this did for me was it allowed me to grow a garden, a market garden, that was a really complete ecosystem. And this is what was driving my interest at the time, was trying to create a, a farm that had the functions of an ecosystem. That is to say, it produced its own organic matter. Plants were going through their whole life cycle, flowering. The flowers were attracting beneficial insects. The beneficial insects were controlling aphids and uh, caterpillars. And, and these are things that are well known today. But at the time, there were no books on this at that time. But the, inf the information was coming out, but it had not been, you know, it was not part of everybody's consciousness that farms were ecosystems. I remember having to convince people that farms actually are ecosystems. <laughs> so the salad, because there were so many things in it, and it was changing constantly, I could always be planting with the season. And uh, we were growing all of this outdoors in a place where it actually snows and gets cold in the wintertime. Uh, we were not using row covers or we didn't have a greenhouse. We didn't have, um, you know, any sort of tunnels were not really something people did at that time. This was all just growing out of doors. And sometimes it was being picked right out of the snow. So the way this tied into the, the uh, plant breeding was that I began to realize that I could make new mustard greens. I could make new kales. I could make all these different things. And as they were being developed, you know, if I made a cross between two kales and then I started growing out that population that came from the cross, and I grew that out in all kinds of weather year round throughout its whole life cycle, I would be able to select the best plants, the ones that recovered the best from being picked constantly, the ones that withstood uh, the temperature extremes, the ones that didn't get aphids. The salad business provided me with an economic way to accomplish plant breeding over a long period of time. The plant breeding all paid for itself because if I was looking at 200 lettuces or picking 200 lettuces of a, of a new kind, I got to touch every plant constantly because we, were we weren't just cutting the whole plants, we were picking leaves from individual, individual leaves from individual plants, that's how we did it. And it allowed all this recurrent, intimate contact <laughs> with every plant there until I could tell you which lettuce plants of those 200 had the thickest leaves and which ones were regrowing the fastest and which ones had the slightly more intense shade of red and which ones didn't have aphids in them and which ones on that coldest morning were not transparent uh, from freezing. So that kind of selection opportunity over really over 18 years of growing salad, is what gave me the chance to learn how to be a plant breeder. I was learning the whole time. And you were really doing not so much seed development 
because you weren't selling seed at this time. You right. were really doing product development for your salad business. That's exactly right, Chris. That is precisely right. We were not selling seeds when we started doing this. We were saving seeds <laughs> until one day after I'd been doing this for about 10 years and Karen looked at all these seeds that, <laughs> that we had been saving. She says, you know what? We can't keep saving any, these seeds unless we're going to sell some of them. She said, we need to start a seed company. <laughs> and that had always been my ambition, actually. When I had that first aha, uh, I realized that if I kept doing this, uh, breeding and selecting for all these different, uh, you know, species, kales, chicories, mustards, parsley, celeries, all these things, that if I did that for 20 years, I'd be able to have a seed company that featured, uh, you know, exclusively my own products. And I thought that would be pretty unique. And I thought, you know, in 20 years, people are going to want to have seeds from plants that were selected under organic conditions. It was just this premonition I had. It actually didn't take 20 years. It took about 10 <laughs> for that to happen. And in 1994, Karen and I started uh, our first catalog on a typewriter sitting at the kitchen table. And we literally did a seed catalog on a typewriter took it down to Kinko's, ran off 500 copies of it, put a picture of a dandelion, <laughs> a dandelion <laughs> seed head on the cover and called it Wild Garden Seed. And I sent those catalogs to all the seed companies that I had ever bought seeds from. You can imagine who they are. Along with a letter saying that we were starting into the seed business and this is what we had to offer now. And, you know, what kind of organic seed does anybody need in 1994? That's when this was happening. And I got only one response from that. It was from uh, what was at once, one time the most esoteric of all seed companies, J.L. Hudson in Redwood City, California. Really? And during that time, the 70s and 80s and 90s, they were by far, you know, the most exotic seed company that I knew of. And they didn't have a telephone. <laughs> you had to contact them in writing. Um, anyway, they wrote back and they bought some seeds and they were encouraging. And they they still buy seeds from us, actually. <laughs> and so anyway, that was our breakthrough. And then the next breakthrough came a couple of years later, when I got a phone call from John Navazia, who is well-known in the organic seed world now as a plant breeder and a teacher of, of plant breeding to farmers, and John has a book called The Organic Seed Grower. Well, at that time, John was a newly minted PhD, and he was working for an alternative seed company in Missoula, Montana, called Garden City Seeds. And they had done a, tr uh, a kale trial that year. And John was calling to tell me that the white Russian kale that they got from our seed catalog was the only kale that went through the winter in Montana. 
And it was also the one that the farm crew had voted as the best tasting kale. And actually, before he had told me all that, when he had just said that he had trialed my kale, my first reaction was kind of a groan because I was afraid that he would think it was too diverse and, you know, a little bit wild. But John says, no, no, that's what we like about it. That's, that's why it's so interesting is because it is variable and you can see that some kinds do better in a new environment than other kinds. And he was really excited about it. And, and John um, basically encouraged me to keep doing what I was doing. Well, a couple of years later, uh, I would meet John and John would come John Vazio would come here and he would take me to a cannery beet field in the Willamette Valley. And John showed me how you put a seed trial of new varieties, new potential varieties into a commercial situation. And he was working for the Alf Christensen Seed Company at that time and and beets were what he was breeding. And he took me into this field and showed me how you just plop a trial right down in a commercial field so that everything in the trial gets the same treatment as a normal commercial crop. It was very interesting. And it was essentially John Vazio giving me a technical education in seeds and seed trialing and really seed breeding. And once again, it was there's sort of an epiphany. It's like, yeah, well, this is what it's all about. You got to put your seeds in the fields of farmers and see how they do. You know, there's no better feedback than the feedback that you're going to get from that farmer. So uh, that was an enlightening um, moment. And it was also the moment when I realized that John Vazio and I had actually met once before. We had met in 1982 on a farm near Eugene, Oregon, where I was out fishing around for ideas, and he was working there. And we had spent time talking to each other, and we didn't realize that until we actually met face-to-face in 1998 <laughs> and did this little beat thing together. So anyway, it was, it was an interesting exercise in how small the seed world actually is. You know? And can we just take a, a moment, a, a John yeah. Navazio appreciation yeah. moment? Because <laughs> I feel like John is one of those people in the seed world for the last 20 or 25 years who has gone around making connections, having yes. bits of input here and bits of input there, and really, in a lot of ways, leveraging his contacts and making things, making, making things that were working, you know, working. And taking him to making him into something that was so much bigger and better because of the ideas and the practicality that he brought to them. And then just the way that he always made these constant connections. John was the person that put me <laughs> in touch with you back in right. back in 1999 <laughs> when we were trying to figure out how to get salad greens from Decorah, Iowa to Madison, Wisconsin in the wintertime. And yeah. John says, you got to talk to Frank Morton. You know? Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. John was the great connector uh, of a lot of things. <laughs> of a lot of things. He really has been. And, you know, he has taught probably more people the basics of, of organic plant breeding than anybody else. 
he's he's covered the globe. I mean, literally going to you know other to Hawaii and all over the United States and to Canada, teaching people the fundamentals of organic plant breeding. And once you have the fundamentals, you know, it's all practice. It really is. And so I don't think that any individual uh, has had as much effect on the organic seed system or the seed system for organic growers, even to put it more broadly, than John Navazio. So yes, we should all appreciate that. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I, I, I totally interrupted your story to have the little John Navazio appreciation moment. So <laughs> it's fine. So John so John comes to your farm and, and shows you how to set up. Shows me techniques. I had good intuition, you know, and John could see that right away. I had really good intuition, but I had never been trained in the craft of plant breeding. You know, there, there's a certain craft to it and there's a kind of an art to it as well. But the real practitioners will tell you that, you know, this is something anyone can do if you know the craft and you can do it way better if you have a good eye and intuition to go with that. So yeah, the, tech, the other technique that John uh, introduced me to, and he sort of led me into this, was um, a three-year experiment that we did at Gathering Together Farm uh, that we affectionately refer to as uh, the Hell's Half Acre Trial. And John's notion was, he's like, Frank, you got all these lettuces. But what, we, what you really want to do is you want to look at all the lettuces that you can look at over a three-year period, and you want to run these lettuces through hell, through a disease trial, where you intentionally try to make them sick. And so, you know, he asked me, what are the most important diseases of lettuce? And I, I tell him, you know, what, what the plagues are as an organic lettuce seed grower and a, as an organic lettuce grower, what the problems are. And he's like, okay, choose your three top problems. And then he just sort of laid out for me how I could do this trial that was, had three replications and we would intentionally inoculate the plants with downy mildew, a fungus called sclerotinia, which is a terrible issue for lettuce growers, uh, especially for lettuce seed growers. <laughs> and, uh, we, but we also looked at tip burn as an issue, as well as um, virus resistance and some other things. But the three biggies were tip burn, sclerotinia, and downy mildew. Uh, we got a grant, or I should say I got a grant from the Organic Farming Research Foundation. And for three years, they funded us to plant a half an acre of lettuce with 40 different varieties, commercial varieties, what, what we would affectionately call the commercial workhorse varieties, heirloom varieties that were popular, and my varieties that I had bred on my farm. And so for three years, we treated those plants about as bad as anyone would ever treat a lettuce patch. We let the weeds grow. We planted the plants too close. Uh, we had five rows of lettuce on a bed. Uh, we set up a misting irrigation system. We misted them at night. <laughs> it just went on and on. <laughs> 
when when they started to bolt rather than turn the water off we watered them uh we were trying to make these things sick from the day they were born to the day that that we collected seed from some of them we were doing our best to give them a hard time and then we were rating them on which varieties did the best and out of 40 varieties you know there were eight varieties that came to the top three of those were sort of uh i don't know they were really really good they were really really resistant against those three conditions and the next five below that they were at least mod they were better than all the rest let's put it that way and they had interesting important uh traits like good flavor thick leaves uh dense heads you know they had they had the things that you would want agronomically and uh from a taste standpoint and they were at least moderate in their uh resistance to these three conditions so after three years of doing that or even actually as it was happening we began to make crosses between the varieties that were doing the best and in particular between the best individuals within the best varieties crossing those together and this created a population um that i have been breeding from ever since this was happening in 2002 2003 and 2004 and so ever since then I've been using progeny that essentially came out of that Hell's Half Acre trial to, to generate new varieties that have better resistance to all those conditions. And as it turns out, my favorite two lettuces actually came out of that. And so, you know, I consider it a success. I don't know if it was financially, I don't know if it actually all pays off. I, it's hard to figure that out, but it did generate a lot of new lettuces. I think those lettuces are good lettuces. Uh, this, I use this as a teaching example in many workshops. So it served as an educational example, not just for me personally, but for a lot of people that I did workshops for. So, uh, you know, I think that, and once again, that was a John Navazio inspiration that I should do that. And I owe John a, a, a great debt for his insight and his instruction. I think one of the things that's interesting about the about the Hell's Half Acre trial and that concept is that it really does point to to something that I when I worked for Seed Savers Exchange, when I was when I was managing the the seed production there mm-hmm. back in the 1990s, you know, there's, there was always this tension between doing seed production and seed selection, right? Yeah. And yeah. And you know, when you're doing seed production, you want really great conditions you want to, because you want to put out as much big, fat, juicy seed as you possibly can. And, Mm -hmm. and you want it to be completely disease free when you're shipping it off to farmers around the country. But at the same time, when you're doing the selection, you really need that to be happening, or at least some of that to be happening in the crappiest possible environment so that you're, you don't end up with a prima donna variety. Exactly. And so that, you know, what you're saying points to, um, you know, the two sides of our business. I have one side, um, which is research and the research doesn't always pay, but you know, 
it's a different set of conditions than the other side, which is our production. And the way this has physically happened here is our actual seed production fields have been either at Gathering Together Farm, which was our our first partner in this business. And then our second partner has been my employee since year 2008. His name is Hank Keogh. And he has a farm about five uh, air miles away from this location here. And so the way we have handled this is one site, usually my place, becomes the breeding site. And there's an awful lot of mess and details and uh, small patches and, you know, a lot of crop failure going on (laughs) at my place. And then at Hank's place, that was the production zone. And, you know, as you say, everything that we can do in that location to make it ideal for producing large, uh, high germination, healthy, disease-free seed that's what happens at that location. So you sort of have to have two different places to do these things. Right. It doesn't really do to have a disease trial going on in the middle of your production zone. That's not what you do. It would make me really unhappy if I was buying seeds from you and I found out that you were doing that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say my friends at Gathering Together Farm, uh, John Evelyn and Sally Brewer, uh, they were really brave to allow me to do that trial literally in the middle of their commercial farm operation. Now, the field I was doing it in was isolated by trees and riparian vegetation, and there was a good deal of isolation there, but they truly are generous. (laughs) They were generous with me to allow me to do that, and I wouldn't necessarily suggest that everybody put a disease trial on their farm. However, I should say, these diseases that we were looking at, they're already everywhere. Downy mildew, I didn't really have to inoculate any crops with downy mildew. It's in the air. It always shows up. It doesn't matter. Sclerotinia affects 75 different plant families, something like 450 different species of plants are affected by it. It affects basically all the broadleaf crops that organic growers produce, everything from beans to celery to lettuce, you name it, it can get sclerotinia. So in one sense, these things are already ubiquitous. And so I wasn't introducing anything to their farm that wasn't already there, to be honest. It's just that I was promoting it. (laughs) Right. Right. I was actually like, yeah, here, grow better, sclerotinia. You know, <laughs> they say that pathologists have to be as good as, at growing the disease organism as they are at growing the crop. One farmer from California walked around in that disease trial and he was walking as if he didn't want to get anything on him. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and as, as uh, he's leaving it, he says, well, Frank, all I can say is you're good at what you do. <laughs> it's like we're just leaving a war zone, you know, uh, the great destroyer. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was that was the disease trial. And it does point to, you know, the, what makes our company different than a lot of seed companies. Well, there's a few things. One of them is we have always grown all the seed that we sell. 
we don't buy seed from others and repackage it and sell it. Uh, that's very unusual, actually. The other thing is we do this research thing on breeding new crops. And that is happening now. But when I started, uh, you know, doing this business, I don't think there were very many seed companies other than perhaps Johnny's who had active, you know, plant breeding programs that were in-house and were being used to create varieties specifically for those companies. There, there was not a lot of that going on at the time. And I don't know. I think when I look around now, I see interest in plant breeding everywhere. So I think that uh, Navazio has done a good job of spreading this. And, you know, I've infected a lot of people and with these ideas. And now it seems like almost every small seed company I know has their own breeding projects going, which I think is really cool. It's really become the norm rather than the exception. I think, I think for exactly the reasons that you're talking about, I mean, it is, if you want something to make yourself stand apart from everybody else, just buying the same stuff from the same wholesale companies, you know, how do you, how do you actually make a seed company that's different out of that? Yeah. 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 And that's what, you know, I always wanted, uh, I've never wanted wild garden seed to be a big company. I've wanted it to be big enough to support itself, of course, and to uh, be able to take care of our employees well and whatnot. But, I've never really wanted to be a seed company that sold everything. You know, I never wanted to sell hybrid seeds. I never wanted to sell books or, <laughs> or backpack sprayers or any of that kind of stuff. You know, I just wanted to sell seeds. And I, in particular, wanted to sell the seeds that were important to me. And in, in my farming career, doing what I've done as you know, everything from my homesteading perspective to my commercial greens production. I, I wanted seeds that sort of reflected the environment that, that I worked in. So Wild Garden Seed was really uh, quite idiosyncratic in terms of what it offers for sale. People still give me a hard time about selling chickweed seed, but I I'm kind of proud it. The only one selling chickweed seed, <laughs> uh, but it's a challenge. I mean, and when people give me a hard time about it, I say, well, you should try, you should try collecting chickweed seed sometime, pure chickweed seed. <laughs> Just try. <laughs> You'll see what it's all about. Well, and I, I, I love the balderdash of selling chickweed seed, but why sell chickweed seed? Well, chickweed uh, is highly nutritious in the first place, very digestible. It's full of vitamins. It's the highest botanical source of copper that, <laughs> that I think you can have in your diet. Chickweed is, uh, you know, it, it's pretty much available almost all the time if you allow it to be. If you fight it tooth and nail, you can make it ugly wherever it shows up. But if you, uh, if you can get along with chickweed, you can grow a lot of plant biomass in the wintertime with virtually no effort. Well, okay, and I've done that. I've done that before. So why would I? Why would I buy the stuff? Well, because you don't always have it when and where you want it. Okay, is that what you mean? Yeah, I guess that's why. Why would I buy the seed when it's going to come up anyway? I mean, I've had. I know that we've had spinach plants <laughs> at Rock Spring Farm that were. You know, there yeah. was spinach somewhere in the chickweed, uh, yes, rather I than know. the vice versa. And I go like, why would I even put that in my greenhouse? <laughs> 
I understand. And that's why I still get grief from people about this. But uh, flip that around. Um, I had depended on chickweed seed for, I don't know, like five years during the beginning of my salad business. And then I moved from Washington to our farm in Oregon, and there was no chickweed because it was truly virgin ground. There was no chickweed there, and we had to bring it in, if you can believe that. (laughs) But it paid. The nice thing about chickweed is it's never going to leave your ground bare in the wintertime, right? (laughs) It's always going to make up for your lapse in getting uh, cover crops out there. I understand that it can outcompete your spinach, but there's usually something else. If it wasn't chickweed, it would be a henbit or something like, or grass for that matter. So I just consider chickweed to be a preferable alternative to grass and henbit and other things that I can't eat. And it's so easy to get rid of, that is, in terms of, you know, it breaks down quickly when you turn it under. It's not not like turning under sod or something like that. Birds do really well on the chickweed. That is, it encourages birds, both because of the seeds and the leaves themselves. It attracts beneficial insects in the very, uh, in late winter here, uh, early spring. So those beneficials are things like parasitic wasps that help you take care of aphids. And I see ladybugs on them in the early spring. And, uh, you know, those insects are getting pollen from that. And those beneficial insects need that pollen in order to lay their eggs. So chickweed is blooming at a time of the year when very few things are providing food to your insect allies. So, you know, I consider that a benefit also. And, you know, these days people have other uses for chickweed. They plant flats of it and they deliver flats of growing chickweed to chefs in restaurants. And then the chefs, it's sort of like a microgreen concept, except they're not really microgreens. They're chickweed flats. And you can actually take them to where they're going to be used and people can clip them off. So I think if you give people, uh, give people the seeds and some ideas, they can turn even a weed into something that's desirable. Don't forget, chicory was a roadside weed at one time. <laughs> Mosh is, is a field weed in, uh, in Europe, right? Yeah. So some people would say, why would you ever plant mosh. It's precisely the same thing. Why would you plant mosh? It's the weed in the grain during the wintertime. Well, it's also what kept people alive after two world wars <laughs> were those, <laughs> those mosh plants in the field. So I don't know. I think all plants are useful. We used to sell the seeds for lamb's quarter because I had a special lamb's quarter that I found uh, on a dairy farm, actually. And what was unique about these lamb's quarters is that they had inner nodes that were only half the length of a standard lamb's quarter. And so it would make these really leafy, bushy plants. You could pick twice as much lamb's quarter off of these as you could off of the, the common lamb's quarter. I sold that for years. I don't sell it now. I found, be- I found that quinoa is actually better than lamb's quarter for that kind of green. All right, with that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Frank Morton from Wild Garden Seeds in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. 
Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In addition to being excellent physical products that grow amazing transplants year after year, Vermont Compost potting soils are an embodiment of the best of the art and the science of potting soils. Seriously, would you rather eat bread or drink beer that's rooted in a place and made with a deep tradition and respect? Or would you rather eat bread and drink beer that's the product of the most reductionist of modern science, which gave us a sliced white bread in plastic bags and the most unpalatable of military industrial beer? And would you rather use potting soils based on reductionist science that require the daily infusion of liquid fertilizers? or potting soils based on living compost and the best ingredients designed to bring the rich diversity of biology into your greenhouse planting trays and soil blocks. I know what I prefer, and that's why I would encourage you to take advantage of Vermont Compost Company's fall pre-buy program to help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost fall pre-buy program runs through December 21st. VermontCompost.com Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but they're so much more. They're truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I am not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com All right, and we're back with Frank Morton from Wild Garden Seeds out in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. We were talking before the break about, you know, some of the crazy stuff that you've got in your seed catalog and and how your seed catalog is, it's all your seeds. It's all stuff that's grown there at Wild Garden Seeds as part of your own operation. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you know, so there's, you know, there are these, these huge gaps in the, in the product line of what you've got. You're not a one-stop shop like Johnny's or, or high mowing seeds. Cause you don't have carrots. And I'm, and I'm kind of curious, you know, how all this works as you're making this transition from being a full-time salad farmer, saving seeds as part of your product development to becoming a seed company Obviously, you you said you started, I think, in 1994 with your first catalog mm-hmm. that you were offering to other seed companies selling seed. Mm-hmm. But then at some point, you left the salad mix business behind. Right. Well, that was an auspicious time. Um, we Karen and I had been doing this business for a long time, uh, the salad business. And by the late 90s, well competition was beginning to come around, but more important, uh, our knees and backs were getting really tired of being down in that salad harvesting position. And I, I guess I began to feel like I had done just about everything that I could do creatively with salad. And I began to yearn to switch from salad to seed. We were selling seeds during this period of time, but it was never more than 10 or 15% of our income. It wasn't really what paid the bills. In terms of the seed, we were sort of laying the groundwork 
at that time. We were getting to know the seed companies. People like Renee Shepard found us and began to use our seeds for her product line. Uh, so our name was starting to, to spread around, and we began selling seeds to companies like Seeds of Change, you know, the first 100% organic seed company. But we were still, you know, we were really salad growers. That's where all of our commercial time was, was going. And, you know, when we sold exclusively to, to restaurants, restaurants in Portland and Seattle, but also on the other side of the country. We were sending things by FedEx, by UPS, by U.S. Postal Service, uh, whatever would get it to the particular restaurant the fastest. We were using that service. And, you know, restaurants come and go, as they say, or chefs move from one restaurant to another. And, and what would sometimes happen is we would lose a restaurant for some reason like that, and then we would have to find another one. Well, in the late 90s, starting about 1998, we just stopped replacing our customers when they went away. So at one time, we may have had 15 restaurants we were serving. Well, that number just kept getting smaller and smaller, but each restaurant was taking more and more. So we were still selling more salad than ever, but to fewer people. And then we got an account at a hotel in Philadelphia at the Four Seasons Hotel, Fountain Restaurant. And the Fountain Restaurant eventually always wanted more. And so in the end, we had one customer. All of our product was going to one restaurant. And we told ourselves, when that restaurant no longer wants us, we're going into the seed business. <laughs> this was the only way I could get out of doing salad. <laughs> I couldn't just give it up because it was too easy at this point. We could do it in our sleep, you know, and, and by the time you're down to having only one account, it was, I mean, it was everything, it was like the worst thing you can do in farming, sort of, you know, like who the heck wants to sell to only one account? That's, that breaks all the rules, but we were just setting ourselves up. By this time, we had paid for our land, you know, the salad business had taken care of our mortgage and we felt pretty free. <laughs> and we even had some money in the bank. And, uh, well, then September 11th, 2001 happened. And I don't know if you remember, but after 9-11, there was no air traffic. You could not get a salad across the country if you wanted to. But really, nobody was going out to restaurants. Nobody was going out to hotels. The tourist industry on both coasts crashed you remember that. Yeah. And it was on September the 12th that the chef called me from the Fountain Restaurant and he said, Frank, he said, uh, I'm sorry, but um, I'm sending my whole crew on a three-week vacation. And when they return, I do not expect the restaurant to reopen. So he was basically telling me, no more salad, please. And <laughs> I mean, it was such a surreal time anyway. Yeah. Uh, Everybody was sort of in a cloud of uncertainty in those days. It's like, is something else going to happen now? Remember, we were all worried about airplanes of any sort. <laughs> it was very quiet. You go outside and there was, it was, the sky had never been so quiet. And I walked out, Karen was working in the garden. I said, Karen, we are now in the seed business. The fountain is closed. 
And <laughs> it was just kind of this all at once. There we were. Now we were in the seed business. What were we going to do? Well, it actually took us probably three years to get our feet under us in the seed business and to have enough cash flow coming in that it was replacing everything we had had before. We ended up spending all of our savings making the transition. We formed a partnership with our friends at Gathering Together Farm here in, in Philomath, Oregon. And uh, that partnership basically enabled us to grow more seed than we ever could have grown on our, our own place. Gathering Together Farm had 65 acres in organic vegetable production spread out over on different fields scattered around several square miles. So there was isolation between the fields. And we developed a system of growing seeds with gathering together that created a synergy between their produce production and our seed production. So for example, you know, uh, red Russian kale, they would have an acre or a half an acre of red Russian kale for kale production. And then as soon in, as that leaf production was finished in the spring, me and my seed crew would take over that kale, right? So in essence, the produce side of it grew that kale for a year, and then the seed side of it took over, and we finished out the life cycle of the plant and harvested the seed off of it, you know, later that summer. Uh, we could do the same thing with uh, Swiss chard or parsley. Any of these biennials where you harvest the leaves, like collards, you harvest the leaves from them, and then there's a whole different part of the life cycle, which is also productive. It's the seed cycle. So we developed a very synergistic system with Gathering Together Farm, and we could produce a lot of seed that way, much more than I ever would have been able to produce if I did not have that partnership. I always thought that Gathering Together Farm uh, really gave Karen and I and Wild Garden Seed a place to stand. It was, you know, the synergy between our two farm enterprises was just terrific. Um, I mean, here you have these guys who are using our seeds to produce crops, and then I get to see how they function, and I get feedback from them about how it's working, and, you know... I can't imagine uh, a more productive sort of partnership than that, a seed organic produce partnership. And I still see that as uh, a terrific model for young uh, seed heads like myself at a certain age who need access to land. They don't have access to land. Well, produce farmers have land. <laughs> and they have greenhouses and they have tractors and irrigation systems, all these things that, you know, an itinerant seed head like myself would not have had at my disposal. So, uh, but it's a tricky thing, you know. Um, seeds have different uh, irrigation needs than uh, produce. And, you know, some of the rough spots that would happen would be if I had. Swiss chard that was uh, ripening in August, and then right next to that, some uh, fall crop had been planted that needed to be irrigated. Right. And then the wind is blowing the water from that irrigated patch into my seed patch, which I don't want to get wet, you see. 
And, and those kinds of things, there were always problems to work out like that. But it was a very uh, rich and productive model of seed production. Um, so we did that with Gathering Together Farm uh, from 2002 up until 2014. Um, at that point, we split off Wild Garden Seed from Gathering Together Farm. So now it actually is an independent entity at this point. We still produce crops with Gathering Together Farm, but our businesses are independent. Previously, if Gathering Together Farm had been sold, Wild Garden Seed would have been sold with it. And we didn't want that to continue. So that's why we got our business straight on that. But this idea of uh, integrating produce crops and seed crops in organic systems is, I think, a valuable model to use. So during the meantime, around 2010, uh, we also started a another partnership with my friend and partner, Hank Keogh, growing at his place. So that at that point, we had three different production zones. We had Gathering Together Farm, uh, my farm as a research place, and Hank's Avoca Farm as another production place that was far enough away that we didn't have isolation or cross-contamination issues. So that's, that is... Uh, you know, the model that we have come to right now, we're undergoing changes still. As Karen pointed out to me earlier today, we've been changing since the day we started farming. And that's true. You know, you have to have to keep adapting. <laughs> Karen and I are getting older now. She's 65 and I'm 62. And, you know, I still don't want my company to, to be, you know, bought by somebody. I don't want it to be uh, turned into something big. I want to keep riding this, uh, this, little, <laughs> this little business that I started so long ago. I want to keep seeing where it goes. I think that's a good place for us to turn to our lightning round after we get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round is brought to you by Local Food Marketplace. Are you trying to scale up without the right systems? Instead of juggling email and text orders, spreadsheets for harvest packing and delivery, and a separate invoicing system, Local Food Marketplace's software platform will help your farm automate these tasks and decrease errors with its fully integrated system for online orders, inventory management, order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Easily configure the system for managing multiple sales channels, customer types, price levels, and delivery routes. The platform also offers lot number traceability and an option to collaboratively sell products with other producers. Contact them via their website, localfoodmarketplace.com, to schedule a free consultation on how Local Food Marketplace can help you efficiently manage customer orders from pack house to your customer's doorstep. So Frank, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Well, you know, I thought about this. I have a lot of tools I really like. Uh, and so they're tools that other people probably like, like, like my hoe, I like my cutting tool, <laughs> I like things like that. But really, uh, I think my threshing stick, my seed stick, and it's just a stick. It's 36 inches long. It's, uh, you know, about as big around as my thumb. 
And it's what we use to manage seed crops, to thresh them, to knock the seeds off. And everyone who works for me, uh, I make them a stick, and that becomes their stick. It's very important that it be their stick, otherwise it'll get lost. (laughs) (laughs) So everybody's got a stick, and these sticks are like an extension of your arm. You know, when we're handling seed plants, you know, a, a lettuce plant or a kale plant is four feet tall, five, six feet tall sometimes, and the seeds are attached to them and enough that they don't just fall off. Some of them will fall off, but most of them need to be knocked off by some rattling kind of hit. And these sticks are just the right right weight so that if you hit a kale plant, all the seed shatters off. But you have, it's not like hitting it with a baseball bat where you break the plant into 100 pieces. It just rattles off the seeds. And, uh, you know, I started using a stick. It was just a broomstick handle back in, oh, I don't know, late 90s or something like that. And I used this broomstick handle for years until it just sort of wore down like a pencil wears down. The seat, the <laughs> soft wood just sort of disappeared over time, and then I broke it, so I was without a seed stick, and I realized at that point how important it was to me. This was not premeditated, just just kind of started happening, and then uh, I found my stick, and it was made for me by a beaver in the river, and I found this stick that was the perfect weight and length for me, and I started using that, and I still have it. It's like, um, I don't know, 15 years old, probably. But anytime someone comes to work for me, I make them a stick. And uh, I make them out of different woods, sometimes hazel. Mine is ash. I've made them out of holly, cherry. And anyway, these sticks are something that people always have with them. Once, Once the first crops come ripe at the end of June, these sticks are always nearby. And they're just absolutely indispensable. It extends your reach so that you can flip things off the ground without bending over so far. It allows you to pick up a tarp off the ground without bending over. And use tarp might be another of my favorite tools. We couldn't do what we do without tarps. These are very simple tools, but they make the seed work um, very efficient. So it's kind of boring, but it's a stick. I mean, I will say you said they're just a stick, but you said you make them for people and you sent me a picture of these. They're beautiful. I mean, they're, I did, they're, yeah. they're clearly, it's not like you're just handing somebody a, a wooden bow. You've, you've done, you've done some work and imbued some personality into them. I love it. I carve them. It's like in that picture I sent you on the side is the raw stick. That's a piece of hazel wood. And then I embellish them by carving them and whatnot. So, like I said, they're all individual, individuated, and people really love their sticks. And once a person starts using their stick, they're not going to want to trade that stick in, you know, unless it breaks, and they don't usually break. So, Frank, what's your favorite crop to grow? Lettuce. I thought that was, I, 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 was, guessing. <laughs> I was guessing. Lettuce is my totem plant. If lettuce feels bad, I feel bad. <laughs> if it's too hot... For lettuce, I'm too hot. If it's too cold for lettuce, I'm probably cold. And <laughs> so I'm a lot like a lettuce plant. I like moderate temperatures. I like it kind of moist. But really, you know, just 
nothing grows like lettuce. It's so rewarding to grow it. It's beautiful. The, the color diversity, it's a lot like flowers, actually. They're like uh, leafy flowers in some ways because there's such a diversity of leaf shapes and colors and, and head shapes. And, uh, and it turns out that there's a lettuce for just about every season, you know, including wintertime. There are short-day lettuces and long-day lettuces. Um, and it turns out lettuce is really good for you. It's highly digestible. Uh, you know, it's um, full of vitamins and minerals, of course. And some lettuces, like head lettuce, actually contain an amino acid called choline, which turns out to be one of the essential amino acids for people. And lettuce would be right up there with beans as the highest vegetable source of choline in the American diet. So, you know, they're under they're underrated for their nutritional value, but you know, farmers I think recognize the importance of lettuce. It is way easier to get by uh, without bok choy than it is without lettuce. Oh yeah, market, <laughs> pretty sure, <laughs> right? If you show up at the market with no lettuce, it's like that that's that's a hole in your in your product line. And as I say, it's. Farmers love it because it's the first thing of spring, you know, you get your radishes, you get your lettuce, and now you know spring is really on. It's a, it's a, um, always welcome. I don't know anybody really who says, I don't like lettuce. I know people who say, I don't like kale, I don't like beets, I don't like tomatoes. I don't know anyone who says, I don't like lettuce. So in that way, I think it's kind of a, it's a universal plant, and it was from the standpoint of my career, it was probably a very fortuitous choice for me uh, because it's self-pollinating. And that means that I can breed a lot of varieties of it in one place, as opposed to something like kale. You can only work on one kale at a time, you know, because they cross-pollinate. So with lettuces, it allowed me to do a lot of experimentation in a small amount of space and to produce a lot of unique varieties that were immediately appreciated by my customers. I mean, one of the nice things about salad as a farm product, and this is something Karen and I always appreciated, is that the salad uh, essentially it goes onto the plate just as it is. You know, there's no cooking, there's no spicing. Maybe you dress it, okay? But really, the quality of the salad uh, is a direct product of the farm. And so the farmer gets a lot of credit for the salad. Whereas when you eat something that's been, you know, finely prepared and gone through braising or whatever, the chef gets the credit for that, <laughs> for all the preparation. So anyway, I always liked lettuce in particular because it's a direct connection between the consumer and the grower. And, you know, the consumer knows that it's the grower who really made this thing great. So that's fun. And you have an interesting lettuce story. One of your lettuces was the first plant, I think, <laughs> to be grown in outer space and eaten. You got it. <laughs> that is a funny story. Well, that's the lettuce is named Outrageous. And 
the first time that Rob Johnston, the founder of Johnny Selected Seeds, came to my garden was 1999. And we were walking around the garden, and he looked over at one of the beds, and he pointed at it from 20 feet away, and he said, what's that? And I said, that's outrageous. And he walked over to it, and he said, that's the reddest lettuce I've ever seen. And then uh, when he got home, he wrote me a letter and asked if he could sell outrageous lettuce in the Chinese catalog. So that would have been my first lettuce that, you know, made it to another catalog. And I was pretty proud of that to start with. And then uh, I suppose it was three years ago, I was sitting with a friend and she was reading her phone and she said, Oh, look at this. They just grew lettuce for the first time on the space station. I said, what kind of lettuce? And she said, oh, I don't know, some red lettuce. <laughs> That's a, And that was as close as I got to the truth at that moment. It would be like five months later. No way. I Yeah, five months later, I find out, you know, through, I don't know, some magazine that the lettuce is outrageous. And I'm just like, holy cow. <laughs> Nobody told me they had bought the seed. NASA bought the seed from Johnny's along with a whole bunch of other lettuces. They bought, they got, um, I finally got the story. I got to talk to the person who actually selected outrageous for this purpose. And uh, she told me that they had a very, some specific things they were looking for in the first salad plant to be grown on the space station. First of all, they wanted to know if they could grow a salad plant in space. Uh, they, they had to work on lighting and all these other issues related to making the plant grow up. Since there's no gravity to respond to, how do you make it grow up? And anyway, it was a big experiment and they needed uh, you know, a plant, but they were worried about plants being colonized by human bacteria. Uh, because these were going to be eaten raw, if, say, salmonella off an astronaut were to colonize the leaf of a lettuce and you ate the lettuce, you might get sick, and that would be a big deal in space, right? Just think about what the most common bacteria in the air on a space station must be. It must be E. coli. Everybody farts. <laughs> so that's what they were worried about. And so they were take they took they used kale and arugula and mustards and uh, various varieties of lettuces and they tried to colonize the leaves with bacteria. And for some reason, outrageous refused to be colonized. It had the the lowest microbial growth on its leaves of any species or variety of lettuce that they tested. And it was very high in, uh, you know, uh, phytonutrients and, and anthocyanins. They considered that an important nutrient for astronauts to have to eat because of their exposure to radiation and, you know, the free radicals that are produced by radiation uh, can be soaked up by things like anthocyanin in the diet. So they liked the dark red color. They liked its germ-free surface. And it grew uh, vigorously for them and produced a good yield, and it tasted pleasant. 
<laughs> so that's why they chose it. And anyway, it was it was a thrill actually to hear that. I can't say I personally had a thing to do with it, which is great because the lettuce sold itself. And finally, Frank, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I knew you were going to ask me this. And I thought about this. And most of the things that I think of are sort of like, uh, well, they're kind of like standing criticisms of myself, right? Why aren't I better at this? I should have started doing this different a long time ago kind of thing. And so the things that occur to me are things like, uh, mm, don't take a liking to liquor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't work on Sunday. Um, and this list could go on. These are things that I do now that, I don't know, maybe my life would be better if I didn't work on Sunday. Um, maybe, maybe the advice would have been stop living off the grid, Frank. All that chopping wood and hauling water is wasting your time. Get back to town where you got some electricity and get on with your work so you can do it efficiently. You can you have electricity to dry things and fans to blow on things. And, you know, get over this off-the-grid lifestyle you've been living. I might have told myself that, and I could have saved myself years of time if I wasn't, you know, cutting my own firewood and splitting it. And I mean, Karen and I made all of our meals for 35 years on a wood stove, starting with breakfast, even in August. So that's what I call our chop wood, haul water uh, period of life. It lasted a long time. And I would think about what could I be doing today if I wasn't splitting this firewood for winter? What could I be doing today if it wasn't taking me 20 minutes to get myself a cup of coffee off this wood stove? Which is pretty good, by the way. <laughs> 20 minutes. Uh, but, you know, what I really think about all that is, though I could go back now and I could tell myself those things, you know, you're going to waste years doing this. I would just be a different person if I had done that. And I might not be where I am now if I hadn't had all that time splitting wood. And if I had, you know, if I had had all the electricity I wanted. I mean, I lived off the grid and I had, you know, a certain amount of wattage off my uh, solar, system, solar power system. But it was a limited amount of power. It meant that I could do a limited amount of things in terms of developing a seed company. And, uh, you know, if I had made different choices, I don't know, I could be working for Monsanto now for all I know. <laughs> I don't know what might have happened to me. But my lifestyle, the lifestyle that Karen and I met in, and continued to live for a long time, it just made me a different person. And it gave me different, uh, a different sense of time, I think. And that allowed, there's something about doing those things that makes you patient. 
And being a plant breeder is all about patience. When people say, how long does it take you to breed a new lettuce? I say, oh, I don't know. Five years? Ten years? I'm not sure. It's never really done. And they say, I would never have the patience for that. But what you have to understand is, that's all being rolled into this life. And it's not, I don't have one breeding project going that I'm waiting five or 10 years to finish. I have 50 of them going. And that's, that's why you can be patient because there's always something happening. There's never a dull moment. You're never really sitting around waiting. <laughs> you just keep doing things. And you know, starting new projects and keeping old ones going and coming to completion maybe on some things, but it's just this thing that keeps rolling along. And I just think that if I went back and tried to mansplain to myself how life is going to be and that you're going to run out of time, and you ought to, you know, find faster ways to do this. That's the kind of thing I can imagine telling myself, but I can't imagine I would have listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like I said, I got a whole list of things I could have told myself. And some of them would have made my life better. I don't know. Okay, here's an example. Somebody told me I should get a PhD at one point. And so I actually started to do that. I actually went to Oregon State for part of a term and took, <laughs> took biochemistry and other things like that with the idea I might get a PhD in plant breeding. And this was mm, 2007. And my brother, who's a doctor, he says to me, Frank, why are you doing that? Your whole career is about showing people they don't need a PhD. And I didn't go back to class. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's the kind of thing that I can see myself. Oh, shoot, Frank, if you'd gotten a PhD, think of how many students you could have taught, and blah, 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 blah. Well, I know. No, I didn't want to do that, really. So that's my feeling about that question. I know too much to think that I could get a better outcome by changing a few things 20 years ago. <laughs> anyway. Frank, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you, Chris. I, I do appreciate my opportunity to be here. You have a terrific show. And it's, it's you know such a wonderful venue for us sharing our stories together. Thank you very much. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 147 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Morton. That's M O R T O N. Also, you know, because Frank's that kind of a guy, he didn't even plug the website for wild garden seeds, which is wildgardenseeds.com. It's a lot of fun to cruise through the collection that Frank has developed, and I'd really encourage you to visit and request a catalog. He's got some great stuff. 
The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. A reminder that you can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, talk to us in the show notes, tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world. You can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.